Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. Today, we're going to do a little bit of a, an overdue podcast, shall we say, because I always introduce a podcast saying that we're going to talk th- about things with a social work perspective, and I'm realizing that not everyone is going to know what a social work perspective is. We're entering into March, and March is Social Worker Appreciation Month, so I thought what better time to do a podcast about what a social worker is. We're going to talk about the history a little bit of the social work profession. We'll talk about uh, what social workers do and how to become a social worker if you want to be one. And we'll also talk about the values and the ethics regarding social work. So social work mainly started in England and the U.S., and Jane Addams is often the individual that we call the mother of social work. She's a founder of the U.S. Settlement House Movement, and basically what that that movement is, is uh, that was established with middle-class volunteers being able to help the less fortunate. So they would bring these houses in or establish these houses in a little bit higher up neighborhoods so that less fortunate neighbors could be helped. So for example, you'd have a house that basically wealthy ladies in the community that wanted to be helpful could come in and help those people with education, legal, health, all those kind of things. And that was in the early 1900s. So by 1913, they had 413 settlement houses in 32 different states. The poor were thought to be a direct threat to the social order. So remember, this is right after the Industrial Revolution, the 1800s, 1900s, and everyone was transitioning from agriculture to industry, and it really created this giant chasm of classism, even more so than it used to be in the United States, um, because everybody was moving to the city and then didn't have any resources or family to help them out. The very first medical social workers were in England, and they were called almoners. Mary Stewart was the first, and she worked in a hospital, and she would assess people coming in and seeking treatment and decide if they were, quote, deserving enough for the free treatment that they were able to provide. So the, that's kind of the origins of social work is that these ladies um, helping people, helping the poor, helping the less fortunate, and that's how it started. At the same time that all this was starting in the early 1900s, there were fights in the professional realm about whether or not social work was a legitimate profession. So psychology and psychiatry were on the rise But they were still struggling, and the increased needs for social workers after World War II allowed for the NASW, or National Association of Social Workers, to form. And in case you want to know more about that, that is www.socialworkers.org. They were formed in 1955, and at that time, there was finally a lobby for the profession of social work. Before then... We had just been struggling with even being a legitimate profession. And even now, there are still fights within clinical professions between psychology, psychiatry, different types of counselors, marriage and family counselors, social workers, 
Although we can and often do similar and the same roles, um, there's still some infighting, which is unfortunate, but I think that's getting a little bit better. So the mission of social work is to enhance human well-being and help meet the basic human needs of all people with particular attention to the needs and empowerment of people who are vulnerable, oppressed, and living in poverty. A historic and defining feature of social work is the profession's focus on individual, family, and community well-being. Fundamental to social work is attention to the environmental forces that create, contribute to, and address problems in living. So I'm going to go over the values of social work and the ethics that govern our job. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I think it's important in understanding what social work is and understanding social workers in general is that like many of these types of professions, for us it's a calling. It's not just something that we do for work. It's It's part of our being. The very values of social work often, like other professions, you know, veterinarians become veterinarians because they have a passion for healing animals. Obviously, it's not all puppies and roses when you're a veterinarian. There are some really hard things you have to do, but the overall driving force is that passion for caring for animals. And similarly, with social work, Uh, Social justice is an overriding value, and if you have that within you, then you're going to be pulled to a type of profession like this. So, yes, these are the values of our profession. They are our professional ethics, but they also are our personal values and ethics. So the very first value I'm going to talk about, and there's six values, is service. And this is service to others above self-interest. So the ethical principle that goes along with service is the primary goal is to help people in need and to address social problems. And this can also go into the next value of social justice. But when we talk about service, uh, social workers are encouraged to volunteer some portion of their time to do pro bono services. That's to make sure that we're helping those that are in need of our services that may not be able to afford that. And like I said, that goes into the second value, which is social justice. And we are all challenged to fight injustice. Social workers pursue social change, particularly with and on behalf of vulnerable and oppressed individuals and groups of people. And the primary focus is often poverty, unemployment, and discrimination and other kinds of social injustice. So when you think about social justice, you might also think of advocacy work. And we'll talk a little bit more later about the different types of jobs that social workers will do. But these first two values, service and social justice, will lead you to see people that are forming rallies or supporting people that aren't able to. And oftentimes, those community organizers, they really have a social work heart. They may not have the degree, but they're definitely upholding the social values and ethical principles. The next value is dignity and worth of a person. So we are respecting the inherent dignity and worth of a person, treating each person in caring and respectful fashion, mindful of individual differences and cultural and ethnic diversities. 
Social workers promote clients' socially responsible self-determination and seek to enhance clients' capacity and opportunity to change and to address their own needs. So basically what this is saying is each person should be valued on their own merit and they have the inherent right just to be. I think that kind of comes into the words of the Constitution when you're talking about the ability to pursue happiness and, you know, everyone's supposed to be equal. And so that goes back into that value. The next value is importance of human relationships. And social workers understand that relationships between and among people are important vehicle for change. Social workers engage people as partners in the helping process. Social workers seek to strengthen relationships among people in a purposeful effort to promote, restore, maintain, and enhance the well-being of individuals, families, social groups, organizations, and communities. Again, this all ties together. We are social creatures. We are not meant to be isolated, although in the United States we do value autonomy and individualization. But we do crave, in the most basic part of our being, to be connected with people. And so social workers have a value of understanding those relationships and um, fostering them. The next value is integrity. Social workers behave in a trustworthy manner. That's the ethical principle. We are continually aware of the profession's mission, values, ethical principles, and standards, and practice in a manner consistent with them. We are to act honestly and responsibly and promote ethical practices on the part of the organizations. So integrity, I think, is pretty self-explanatory, but uh, it's important that we stand by our word. We mean what we say, and we are not deceitful. The last of the six values is competence. And that is making sure uh, the ethical principle there is practice within the areas of competence and develop and enhance their professional expertise. So we do have an ethical standard to continue to increase our knowledge, continue education, and make sure that you are working within the scope of your competence. You don't want to, for example, say that you can treat someone with a certain modality when you haven't been trained on it. <clears throat> that would not be ethical. So I'm going to dive a little bit here into some ethical standards. There are six overarching ethical standards, but then there are substandards. So I'll just kind of briefly go over these. The first standard is the ethical responsibility to a client. So the majority of this has to do with if you are working anywhere that you have direct access to clients, this is commitment to the client, which is re responsibility of promoting well-being and making sure that the client's interests are primary, not your own. You also have the responsibility of self-determination, making sure you're promoting the client's rights to self-determination and assisting in their efforts to identify and clarify their goals. So you want to make sure that you're honoring and having the client be a part of the process, not you telling them what you're doing. The third subsection of responsibility to clients is informed consent. So any kind of services that you're providing, particularly in a medical setting, you are going to be making sure that your professional relationship is 
completely informed. They know what's going on. You're using language that they're able to understand. You're providing alternate materials in case they need that. For example, uh, if someone's not literate, you would not have them just read and sign a consent. You would make sure that um, you've explained it to them. If, they, if English is not their first language, you should be able to provide materials in their native language. So those kind of things are important for informed consent. Then competence is the next one for commitment to a client. And that is, again, making sure that you know what you're doing, that you continue to get education, that you're getting supervised or using clinical consultation when needed, and that you recognize standards do not exist with respect to emerging area of practice. You should exercise careful judgment and take responsible steps to make sure you're not harming your client. Next, we talk about cultural competence and social diversity. This is really a term that we use is cultural humility instead of cultural competence because you really can't ever understand fully what a culture is all about if you're not from that culture. And even within cultures, it tends to be different. So What's most important is that you, A, understand that there are different cultures, and B, ask the client. They're the expert in the culture that they are a part of. So let them be the guide and, you know, educate yourself as much as you can, but allow the client to educate you and be the guide as you move along. You also want to be sensitive to clients' cultures and to differences among people in those cultures. Conflicts of interest should be avoided, of course. Um, that can be a lot of different things. It could be dual relationships That's a, or multiple relationships. That's a pretty common one um, to get into, which means, and that's particularly difficult in a small community where you may be seeing someone professionally and then you also either know them or know friends of them. You want to make sure that you're trying to avoid conflicts of interest as much as possible as you're working with people. You want to protect clients' interests, and you may even have to terminate a relationship if, if it's just not you're not able to avoid that conflict of interest. Uh, when it's two or more people in a relationship, you want to make sure that you clarify with all parties which individual will be considered the client and what the nature of that work will be. Next, under responsibilities to the client, is privacy and confidentiality. This goes for any kind of medical or clinical work where you're going to follow the laws under HIPAA, which is that you can't share other people's information. There are specific laws, like the Tarasov law, which requires you to inform um, someone if they are in danger, if, if a client has said that they are going to hurt someone directly. But in general, uh, the rights to privacy and confidentiality are held pretty high, particularly in a counseling setting. And so if you're not familiar with confidentiality and privacy, I'm not going to get into the whole thing about that. There's some great episodes on psychology in Seattle about this, um, full-length episodes if you want to listen to those or get consultation or supervision around that. Uh, next is access to records. So social workers should provide clients with reasonable access to records concerning the clients. And the, if you're concerned about that access, 
And if it should, if you think it would cause serious misunderstanding, you should provide assistance in interpreting the records and consultation with the client regarding the records. So people are allowed to see their own records and you just want to make sure that it's not going to cause harm and that if you think that they may misinterpret it, then you need to make sure that you are explaining the context. All right. Ninth under responsibilities to the client is sexual relationships which of course should be obvious that under no circumstance should you engage in sexual activities or sexual, sexual conduct with clients. Um, this is harm. <laughs> this is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. It shouldn't even have as long of a, an explanation in this book as it does, which is kind of funny that it has to. So if you're, if you're having any kind of countertransference or erotic feelings or your clients are having erotic feelings, there's nothing wrong with the actual feeling. You get consultation around it. You learn how to deal with it, but you don't have an action. You never sleep with your clients. You don't harm them by doing that. And you also don't provide clinical services with someone that you've had a prior relationship with. That is an ethical boundary that you can't cross because you're not going to be able to maintain appropriate professional boundaries and you're also going to end up harming the client. As one of my old professors used to say, never sleep with your client, never do drugs with your client, never take your client home. This way you can ensure you're not going to harm them. All right, physical contact. So this is an interesting one. In the ethical guidelines, it says social workers should not engage in physical contact with clients when there's a possibility of psychological harm to the client as a result of contact contact. So I think they're talking more about you don't want to hold your client inappropriately. You want to make sure you're discussing any kind of contact with your client. That's not to say that you can't shake their hand or, you know, in our particular practice in hospice, um, gentle touch is often uh, soothing for a client that's dying, but you need to make sure that you understand the full context of your relationship with them and their history, because if they've had a trauma history, that touch may be harmful. So you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can to get a good history with the client and have a good rapport and communicate as much as you can for that consent. Um, and if, if it's okay, then you can have appropriate culturally sensitive con physical contact. And next is sexual harassment. I think that goes along with sexual relationships. Obviously, you should never sexually harass your clients, request sexual favors, um, have verbal or physical conduct of a so sexual nature. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Derogatory language, written or verbal, should not be used with or about your clients. Use respectful and accu accurate languages all the time. You know, even if you're having a hard time with a client, you should still be using appropriate and respectful language, even if you're talking to a coworker, because your values require you to have respect and dignity for an individual. All right. There are a few more uh, items here I'm not going to get into, which are payment for services, um, clients who lack decision-making capability, interruption of services and termination. Those are all a little more clinical and I'm not going to get into those, but they are part of your responsibilities to clients. The second responsibility is responsibility to colleagues. 
So respect is the first one. And obviously you want to make sure that you are respecting their qualifications, their views and obligations. You want to make sure that you avoid negative criticism, but that doesn't mean that you can't have conversations where you don't agree. You just want to be respectful. Confidentiality, that's across the board, clients, coworkers, anything. Interdisciplinary collaboration is important, uh, particularly in hospice, but there are, you know, certain professions where you're going to be working more alone instead of in a group, but you're still going to have consultation. You're going to have other people that you're going to be working with and make sure that you raise ethical concerns, that you resolve disagreements, and you try to foster those professional relationships. Uh, it just does discuss disputes involving colleagues and referral for services. Of course, it talks about sexual relationships and sexual harassment, which you should never do. It does talk about consultation, impairment of colleagues. That is, uh, if you have direct knowledge of a social work colleague's impairment due to personal problems, psychological distress, substance abuse, or mental health difficulties, then you should consult and uh, make sure that you're helping them take action, or if you need to, then you report it. Uh, there are a few more things here, incompetence of colleagues, unethical conduct of colleagues. I don't think I need to go into those. If you need more information about that, get consultation or read the Code of Ethics book. The third ethical responsibility is about practice settings. So this is more about supervision and consultation. This is making sure that you are doing what you're supposed to be doing and that you have an outlet to be able to consult and discuss uh, any kind of issues that you have and that you have something in place that you do have something that you can fall back on in case you, you need to. It also talks about uh, performance evaluations and making sure that they're fair and respectful. It talks about education and training. This is, uh, again, back to the competence in your field and continued education. Um, you want to make sure that Everyone is making sure that you continue to stay updated on current practices and what's the best practice for your clients. And then it talks about performance evaluations. Again, with any job, you're going to have that. Um, a few more things that I'm not going to get totally into is client records, billing, transfers of clients, administration, commitment to employers, and continuing education and labor disputes. Those are all specific to your job, so I'm not going to get too into those. Ethical responsibilities as professionals. So we're back to our values in this discussion. This is competence, making sure that you're using existing competence or the intention of, comp of necessary competence, making sure that you continue to be proficient and professional and that you critically examine and keep current with emerging knowledge relevant to social work. Discrimination uh, clause here, talking about not practicing, condoning, facilitating, or collaborating with any form of discrimination based on anything that you would discriminate on. Private conduct, that is, social workers should not permit their private conduct to interfere with their ability to fill their professional responsibilities. If you have something going on in your private life, talk to your boss, talk to your coworkers, figure out how you're going to solve that, but you're not going to let that interfere. And if it's going to interfere, then maybe you need to think about taking some time off. 
dishonesty, fraud, and deception. Obviously, this falls under the value of integrity and is not okay. And impairment, if there's some, again, personal problem, legal problem, substance abuse, mental health issues, then you need to make sure that you let someone know and you're taking responsibility that you don't put your clients in harm's way. Misrepresentation is the next one. That is making sure that the distinctions are clear between statements made and actions engaged in as a private individual as opposed to a representative of social work profession. So I can't, as a hospice social worker, run around town giving my personal opinion about politics, for example, and expect people to not know that that's my personal opinion and not hospice if I'm wearing my hospice badge. So I need to make sure that I am not seen as representing my hospice organization when I'm representing my own personal values. So we need to keep personal and professional life separate. This podcast is another great example of that. Everything I say on here is my personal opinion or what I've researched, but it doesn't represent uh, the NSW, it doesn't represent my hospice, and it doesn't represent social work in general. Although I do try strongly to uphold all of our values and ethics. Solicitation and acknowledging credit. Um, Those are the last two ones there. I'm not going to get into those, but you can look them up. Number five is the ethical responsibility of the social work profession. This is the integrity of the profession, which is working towards the maintenance and promotion of higher standards, upholding and advancing the values, ethics, knowledge, and mission of the profession, and contributing time and professional expertise to activities that promote respect for the value, integrity, competence of the social work profession. So this may be teaching, research, consultation, service, legislative testimony, and presentations in the community. And last in this section for the social work profession is evaluation and research. So we're supposed to be monitoring and evaluating policies, implementation and programs, facilitating evaluations, examining emerging relevant knowledge in social work, and engaging in evaluation in research. So basically what they're saying is, make sure that you're following the standards and ethical guidelines for research and knowledge. Make sure you're competent in your field and make sure you're keeping up on that. And you should educate yourself, your students, and colleagues about responsible research practices. So the last ethical responsibility I'm going to talk to is about the broader society. And this one, I think most people can understand here. The first section is social welfare, which promotes the general welfare of society from local to global events and the development of people, their communities, and their environments. Social workers should advocate for living conditions conductive to the fulfillment of basic human needs and should promote social, economic, political, and cultural values and institutions that are compatible with the realization of social justice. Number two is public participation. This is that we should facilitate informed participation by the public in shaping social policies and institutions. This really is that social activist in the community part where you're making sure that people that are going to be affected by these policy changes are the ones putting their voice in and getting heard. 
Public emergencies is the next section, which is to provide pro appropriate professional services in public emergencies to the greatest extent possible. And the last section here is about social and political action. This says social workers should engage in social and political action that seeks to ensure that all people have equal access to the resources, employment services, and opportunities they require to meet their basic human needs and develop fully. Social workers should be aware of the impact of the political arena on practice and should advocate for changes in policy and legislation to improve social conditions in order to meet basic human needs and promote social justice. Social workers should act to expand choice and opportunity for all people with special regard to vulnerable, disadvantaged, oppressed, and exploited people and groups. So <clears throat> we're making sure that we're advocating for those that may not be able to advocate for themselves, but we're also advocating for people that can advocate for themselves but may need a few more voices in their corner. So there's always room for improvement in people's lives, in our communities, in the people that we know. It's tough in these times because sometimes you just want to shut off the news and not be involved because it's overwhelmed. I've talked in the past about having a 24-hour news cycle and how exhausting and burned out you can feel after having that in your face all the time and feeling like there's nothing you can do. And in the social work values and ethical principles, this is where we find the guidelines that say, do what you can. Help out your fellow man. Have respect. Have respect for yourself. Have respect for your clients. Have respect for the community. Try to not be hurtful. Do no harm, as the doctor's Hippocratic Oath says. And do your best. You know, we have to be able to take care of ourselves before we can take care of others. And they don't talk about self-care, but that is an important component of this whole thing. Is that once you feel like you're able to have those conversations, then go forth and educate yourself and see if there is something you can do. It may not have to be, you know, a huge political movement or a march on Washington. It could just be helping out your local food bank to make sure that they have enough supplies. It could be finding out what the local shelter needs and advocating for those resources. It could be finding out what, you know, going to your local um, city council and find out what's going on in your area and is it right and equal and just for all the people in the community, not just the upper class. So those are the things that social workers stand for and those are the values and ethics. I want to talk a little bit about different examples of social work jobs because I think oftentimes in the broader society, if you don't know a social worker, you may think that the only thing that social workers do is work for the Department of Child Welfare and they just come and take your kids. And yes, that is a job that a social worker could do is uh, making sure that they're looking out for the welfare of children and in taking care of foster families that are looking out for children and working with the adoption agencies. But that's not the only thing that social workers do. You may have encountered social workers at the hospital. Hospitals have what they call discharge planners or floor social workers. And those people are making sure that when you leave a hospital stay that you have what you need to be successful when you leave the hospital. 
They may also be doing mental health evaluations or substance abuse evaluations and pointing people in the right direction or making sure they have the resources they need. Of course, hospice social work is a role that I do, and that is one of the counselor members on the team. I've talked about hospice before in another episode, but uh, basically we're involved in making sure that community resources are available and accessible, and also that people's emotional and spiritual and mental health well-being is being attended to along with the spiritual counselors. Social workers at a master's level can also participate in counseling, and I'll get a little bit into that when I talk about education. Social workers are starting to become embedded with the local police departments, which is wonderful. You can't expect police to be able to know and do all the things that a social worker does and interact with people. You know, a lot of these times we're hearing about interactions that go bad with the police, and it's because someone had a mental health Uh, or substance abuse problem and they didn't know how to interact or uh, the police continue to have problems with uh, people experiencing homelessness and so those embedded social workers are able to go out and talk to the people that they're interacting with and provide resources for them if they're willing to accept them and so it can really lower the instances of a bad encounter. And lastly, um, political activists. I talk about that a little bit uh, before, and that is social workers can get involved anywhere from a small local event to a national stage to international uh, concerns that is promoting social justice. By no means is this list the end-all, be-all, every single option of a social worker job, but I just wanted to give you an idea of what some of the things that social workers are able to do. So education, if you are interested in becoming a social worker, there are uh, many professions that require a master's degree in social work, which is an MSW. There are also, there is a bachelor's in social work. It depends on what kind of work you want to be doing. So you need to investigate what you want to be doing and see what kind of education is required. You may or may not need a license and in different states there are different requirements. In Washington State, where I am, it requires uh, three years of postgraduate work, 4,000 clinical hours, and that's broken down uh, in a few different ways, and then 145 supervision hours. It also includes some continuing education credits and an exam. That's all to get your licensure to be able to do certain work. So, for example, being able to be an independent counselor you would need a license, which is an MSW. So the initials for that are LICSW. And not all schools are equal. So you're in, you're sitting there at home. You're like, I think I want to be a social worker. This calls to me. This is a good idea. Well, first of all, don't go into it thinking that you're going to get rich. Most social workers are likely not doing private practice, although we absolutely can. But that's going to be another thing is, you know, you have to balance that work satisfaction with paycheck. Everybody has bills. Everybody has to figure out what they can and can't live with as far as pay. People that are working in the public sector with community mental health are going to be making less than people working at hospitals or working as individual clinicians. So keep that in mind. And then look at the different schools that are available in your area. 
and see if they're accredited for one. See what kind of education they offer. Some MSW programs offer a kind of jack-of-all-trades approach where they're making sure you have a little bit of knowledge about everything and really expecting you to get that extra knowledge from on-the-job training or continuing educa education and supervision. Whereas there are some other programs that actually have clinical tracks or community tracks where you're going to get more information about, for example, being an individual clinician. I would definitely suggest that you ask the school or program that you're thinking about attending if they have alumni that are willing to speak to you. That's probably the most information, helpful information that you're going to get is from someone that's actually been through the program. So talk to people, look up reviews, see what you can find, and see what school is right for you if you feel like you want to enter into the social work profession. Lord knows we need more diversity, we need more men, we need more people of color in social work, we need more LGBTQ, more trans people, everybody involved in social work. You know, I, I'm only one person, I can only do so much, and we definitely need more people uh, being able to be in positions to help those that can't help themselves or that maybe just need a little leg up to be able to help themselves. Sometimes it just takes a few people to be able to advocate and help them see their own self-determination to be able to help themselves. So this is what a social worker is. If you have questions about social work or becoming a social worker or all the different things we do, I'm sorry that values and ethics part might have got a little dry, but I do think it's important to understand where we're coming from and what our professional values are to understand what we do every day. If you have questions, please feel free to email me at contact at willallbedeadpodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook at slash willallbedeadpodcast. And you can find us on Twitter at SomedayDeadPC. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast if you find it helpful. It helps other people find us and it lets me know how I'm doing. So give me some feedback. I'm happy to hear it. And I'm happy to take any questions that you have about any of this from any of you. If you're a social worker out there, thank you so much for what you're doing. Again, it's Social Work Appreciation Month, so if you know someone that's a social worker, give them a thank you. Maybe ask them what they do. I'm sure they'd love to tell you and feel like what they're doing matters in the community. So thank you, social worker, because they're trying to make it better, make the world better for everyone, because someday we'll all be dead. <laughs>